So when the boy was healed, Christiana asked Mr. Skill, saying, Sir, what will content you for your pains and care too, and of my child? And he said, You must pay the master of the College of Physicians, according to the rules made in that case and provided. But sir, said she, what is this pill good for else? It is a universal pill, said Mr. Skill. It is good against all the diseases that pilgrims are incident to, and when it is well prepared, it will keep good time out of mind. Pray, sir, said Christiana, make me up twelve boxes of them, for if I can get these, I will never take another physique. In a glass of the tears of repentance. These pills are good to prevent diseases, said Mr. Skill, as well as to cure when one is sick. Yea, I dare say it, and stand to it, that if a man will but use this physique as he should, it will make him live forever. But, good Christiana, thou must give these pills no other way than as I prescribed, for if you do, they will do no good. So he gave unto Christiana physique for herself and her boys, and for mercy, and bid Matthew take heed how he ate any more green plums, and kissed them and went on his way. It was told you before that Prudence bid the boys, if at any time they would, they should ask her some questions that might be profitable, and she would say something to them. Then Matthew, who had been sick, asked her, Why, for the most part, physique should be bitter to our palates? To show how unwelcome the word of God and the effects thereof are to a carnal heart, answered Prudence. And then Matthew asked, Why does physique, if it does good, purge and cause that we vomit? And Prudence answered, To show that the word, when it works effectually, cleanses the heart and mind. For look, what the one doeth to the body, the other doeth to the soul. And then Matthew said, What should we learn by seeing the flame of our fire go upwards, and by seeing the beams and sweet influences of the sun strike downwards? And Prudence answered, By the going up of the fire we are taught to ascend to heaven by fervent and hot desires. And by the sun's sending his heat, beams, and sweet influences downwards, we are taught that the Savior of the world, though high, reaches down with his grace and love to us below. And then Matthew asked, Where have the clouds their water? And she said, Out of the sea. And he asked, What may we learn from that? So she answered, That ministers should fetch their doctrine from God. And then Matthew asked, Why do they empty themselves upon the earth? to show that ministers should give out what they know of God to the world. Why is the rainbow caused by the sun? asked Matthew. To show that the covenant of God's grace is confirmed to us in Christ. And then he asked, Why do the springs come from the sea to us through the earth? And she answered, To show that the grace of God comes to us through the body of Christ. And he again asked, Why do some of the springs rise out of the tops of high hills? to show that the spirit of grace shall spring up in some that are great and mighty, as well as in many that are poor and low. And then Matthew asked, Why does the fire fasten upon the candle wick? And Prudence answered, To show that, unless grace does kindle upon the heart, there will be no true light of life in us. And then he asked, Why is the wick and tallow and all spent to maintain the light of the candle? To which Prudence answered, to show that body and soul and all should be at the service of and spend themselves to maintain in good condition that grace of God that is in us. And he asked, Why does the pelican pierce her own breast with her bill? 
and Prudence replied, to nourish her young ones with her blood, and thereby to show that Christ the Blessed so loveth his young, his people, as to save them from death by his blood. What may one learn by hearing the cock to crow, asked Matthew. Learn to remember Peter's sin and Peter's repentance, said Prudence. The cock's crowing shows also that day is coming on. Let then the crowing of the cock put thee in mind of that last and terrible day of judgment. The weak may sometimes call the strong to prayers. Now about this time their month was out, wherefore they signified to those of the house that it was convenient for them to be up and going. Then said Joseph to his mother, It is convenient that you forget not to send to the house of Mr. Interpreter, to pray him to grant that Mr. Greatheart should be sent unto us, that he may be our conductor the rest of the way. Good boy, said she, I had almost forgotten. So she drew up a petition and prayed Mr. Watchful, the porter, to send it by some fit man to her good friend, Mr. Interpreter, who, when it was come, and he had seen the contents of the petition, said to the messenger, Go, tell them that I will send him. When the family where Christiana was saw that they had a purpose to go forward, they called the whole house together to give thanks to their king for sending of them such profitable guests as these. Which done, they said unto Christiana, And shall we not show thee something, according as our custom is to do to pilgrims, on which thou mayest meditate when thou art upon the way? So they took Christiana, her children, and Mercy into the closet, and showed them one of the apples that Eve did eat of, and that which also she did give to her husband, and that for the eating of which they were both turned out of paradise, and asked her what she thought that was. Then Christiana said, It is food or poison, I know not which. A sight of sin is amazing. So they opened the matter to her, and she held up her hands and wondered, Then they had her to a place and showed her Jacob's ladder. Now at that time there were some angels ascending upon it. So Christiana looked and looked to see the angels go up, and so did the rest of the company. Then they were going into another place to show them something else. But James said to his mother, Pray, bid them stay here a little longer, for this is a curious sight. So they turned again and stood feeding their eyes with this so pleasing a prospect. A sight of Christ is taking. After this they had them into a place where did hang up a golden anchor. So they bid Christiana take it down. For, said they, you shall have it with you, for it is of absolute necessity that you should, that you may lay hold of that within the veil, and stand steadfast, in case you should meet with turbulent weather. So they were glad thereof. Then they took them and had them to the mount upon which Abraham, our father, had offered up Isaac his son, and showed them the altar, the wood, the fire, and the knife, for they remained to be seen to this very day. When they had seen it, they held up their hands and blessed themselves and said, Oh, what a man for to love his master, and for denial to himself was Abraham. After that they showed them all these things, Prudence took them into the dining room, where stood a pair of excellent virginals. So she played upon them, and turned what she had showed them into this excellent song, saying, Eve's apple we have showed you, of that be you aware. You have seen Jacob's ladder too, upon which angels are. An anchor you received have, but let not these suffice, until with Abram you have gave your best a sacrifice. Now about this time one knocked at the door, 
So the porter opened, and behold, Mr. Greatheart was there. But when he was come in, what joy was there! For it came now afresh again unto their minds, how but a while ago he had slain old grim bloody man, the giant, and had delivered them from the lions. Then said Mr. Greatheart to Christiana and to Mercy, My Lord has sent each of you a bottle of wine, and also some parched corn, together with a couple of pomegranates. He has also sent the boys some figs and raisins to refresh you in your way. Then they addressed themselves to their journey, and prudence and piety went along with them. When they came at the gate, Christiana asked the porter if any one of late went by. He said, No, only one some time since, who also told me that, of late, there had been a great robbery committed on the king's highway as you go. But he saith the thieves are taken, and will shortly be tried for their lives. Then Christiana and Mercy were afraid. But Matthew said, Mother, fear nothing as long as Mr. Greatheart is to go with us, and to be our conductor. Then said Christiana to the porter, Sir, I am much obliged to you for all the kindnesses that you have showed me since I came hither, and also for that you have been so loving and kind to my children. I know not how to gratify your kindness, wherefore pray, as a token of my respects to you, accept of this small mite. So she put a gold coin in his hand, and he made her a low bow, and said, Let thy garments be always white, and let thy head want no ointment. Let mercy live and not die, and let not her works be few. And to the boys he said, Do you flee youthful lusts, and follow after godliness, with them that are grave and wise. So shall you put gladness into your mother's heart, and obtain praise of all that are sober-minded. So they thanked the porter and departed. Now I saw in my dream that they went forward until they were come to the brow of a hill, where piety, bethinking herself, cried out, Alas, I have forgot what I intended to bestow upon Christiana and her companions. I will go back and fetch it. So she ran and fetched it. While she was gone, Christiana thought she heard, in a grove a little way off on the right hand, a most curious melodious note, with words much like these. Through all my life thy favor is, so frankly showed to me, that in thy house forevermore my dwelling place shall be. And listening still, she thought she heard another answer it, saying, For why, the Lord our God is good, his mercy is forever sure, his truth at all times firmly stood, and shall from age to age endure. So Christiana asked Prudence what it was that made those curious notes. They are, said she, our country birds. They sing these notes, but seldom, except it be at the spring, when the flowers appear, and the sun shines warm, and then you may hear them all day long. I often, said she, go out to hear them. We also oft times keep them tame in our house. They are very fine company for us when we are melancholy. Also they make the woods and groves and solitary places desirable to be in. By this time piety was come again. So she said to Christiana, Look here. I have brought thee a scheme of all those things that thou hast seen at our house, upon which thou mayest look when thou findest thyself forgetful, and call those things again to remembrance for thy edification and comfort. Chapter 6 Now they began to go down the hill into the valley of humiliation. It was a steep hill, and the way was slippery, but they were very careful, so they got down pretty well. When they were down in the valley, Piety said to Christiana, 
This is the place where Christian, your husband, met with the foul fiend Apollyon, and where they had that dreadful fight that they had. I know you cannot but have heard thereof. But be of good courage, as long as you have here Mr. Greatheart to be your guide and conductor, we hope you will fare the better. So, when these two had committed the pilgrims into the conduct of their guide, he went forward, and they went after. Then said Mr. Greatheart, We need not to be so afraid of this valley, for here is nothing to hurt us, unless we procure it to ourselves. It is true that Christian did here meet with Apollyon, with whom he had also a sore combat. But that fray was the fruit of those slips that he got in his going down the hill. For they that get slipped there must look for combats here. And hence it is that this valley has got so hard a name. For the common people, when they hear that some frightful thing has befallen such a one in such a place, are of an opinion that that place is haunted with some foul fiend or evil spirit, when, alas, it is for the fruit of their doing that such things do befall them there. This valley of humiliation is of itself as fruitful a place as any the crow flies over, and I am persuaded if we could hit upon it we might find somewhere hereabouts something that might give us an account why Christian was so hardly beset in this place. Then James said to his mother, Lo, yonder stands a pillar, and it looks as if something was written thereon. Let us go and see what it is. So they went and found there written, Let Christian slips before he came hither, and the battles that he met with in this place be a warning to those that come after. Lo, said the guide, did not I tell you that there was something hereabouts that would give intimation of the reason why Christian was so hard beset in this place? Then turning himself to Christiana, he said, No disparagement to Christian, more than to many others whose hap and loss his was, for it is easier going up than down this hill, and that can be said but a few hills in all these parts of the world. But we will leave the good man, he is at rest, he also had a brave victory over his enemy. Let him that dwelleth above grant that we fare no worse when we come to be tried than he. Men thrive in the valley of humiliation. But we will come again to this valley of humiliation. It is the best and most fruitful piece of ground in all these parts. It is fat ground, and as you see, consists much in meadows. And if a man was to come here in the summer time, as we do now, if he knew not anything but thereof, and if he also delighted himself in the sight of his eyes, he might see that that would be delightful to him. Behold how green this valley is, also how beautiful with lilies. I have also known many laboring men that have got good estates in this valley of humiliation. For God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Indeed, it is a very fruitful soil, and doth bring forth by handfuls, some also have wished that the next way to their father's house were here, that they might be troubled no more with either hills or mountains to go over. But the way is the way, and there's an end. Now as they were going along and talking, they espied a boy feeding his father's sheep. The boy was in very mean clothes, but of a very fresh and well-favored countenance. And as he sat by himself, he sang, Hark, said Mr. Greatheart, to what the shepherd's boy saith. So they hearkened, and he said, He that is down needs fear no fall, he that is low no pride, he that is humble ever shall have God to be his guide. I am content with what I have, little be it or much, 
and Lord, contentment still I crave, because thou savest such. Fullness to such a burden is, that go on pilgrimage, here little and hereafter bliss, is best from age to age. Then said their guide, Do you hear him? I will dare to say that this boy lives a merrier life, and wears more of that herb called heart's ease in his bosom than he that is clad in silk and velvet. But we will proceed in our discourse. Christ, when in the flesh, had his country house in the valley of humiliation. In this valley our Lord formerly had his country house. He loved much to be here. He loved also to walk these meadows, for he found the air was pleasant. Besides, here a man shall be free from the noise and from the hurrying of this life. All states are full of noise and confusion, only the valley of humiliation is that empty and solitary place. Here a man shall not be so let and hindered in his contemplation, as in other places he is apt to be. This is a valley that nobody walks in but those that love a pilgrim's life. And though Christian had the hard hap to meet here with Apollyon, and to enter with him into a brisk encounter, yet I must tell you that in former times men have met with angels here, have found pearls here, and have in this place found the words of life. Did I say our Lord had here in former days his country house, and that he loved here to walk? I will add, in this place, and to the people that love to tread these grounds, he has left a yearly revenue, to be faithfully paid them at certain seasons, for their maintenance by the way, and for their further encouragement to go on their pilgrimage. Now as they went on, Samuel said to Mr. Greatheart, Sir, I perceive that in this valley my father and Apollyon had their battle. But whereabout was the fight? For I perceive this valley is large. And answered Mr. Greatheart, Your father had that battle with Apollyon at a place yonder before us, in a narrow passage just beyond forgetful green. And indeed that place is the most dangerous place in all these parts. For if at any time the pilgrims meet with any brunt, it is when they forget what favors they have received, and how unworthy they are of them. This is the place also where others have been hard put to it. But more of the place when we come to it, for I persuade myself that to this day there remains either some sign of the battle, or some monument to testify that such a battle there was fought. Humility of sweet grace. Then said Mercy, I think that I am as well in this valley as I have been anywhere else in our journey. The place, methinks, suits with my spirit. I love to be in such places where there is no rattling with coaches nor rumbling with wheels. Methinks here one may, without much molestation, be thinking what he is, whence he came, what he has done, and to what the king has called him. Here one may think and break at heart, and melt in one's spirit, until one's eyes become like fish pools in Heshbon. They that go rightly through this valley of Baca make it well. The rain that God sends down from heaven upon them that are here also filleth the pools. This valley is that from whence also the king will give to his their vineyards, and they have confessed the same. To this man will I look, for all he met with Apollyon. Tis true, said their guide, I have gone through this valley many a time, and never was better than when here. I have also been a conductor to several pilgrims, and they have confessed the same. To this man will I look, saith the king, even to him that is poor, and of a contrite spirit, and that trembleth at my word. 
Now they were come to the place where the aforementioned battle was fought. Then said the guide to Christiana, her children, in mercy, This is the place. On this ground Christian stood, and up there came Apollyon against him. And look, did I not tell you? Here is some of your husband's blood upon these stones to this day. Behold also how here and there are yet to be seen upon the place some of the shivers of Apollyon's broken darts. See also how they did beat the ground with their feet as they fought to make good their places against each other. How also with thereby blows they did split the very stones in pieces. Verily Christian did here play the man and showed himself as stout as could had he been there, even Hercules himself. When Apollyon was beat, he made his retreat to the next valley, that is called the valley of the shadow of death, unto which we shall come anon. Lo, yonder also stands a monument, on which is engraven this battle and Christian's victory to his fame throughout all ages. So because it stood just on the wayside before them, they stepped to it and read the writing, which word for word was this, Hard by here was a battle fought, most strange and yet most true. Christian and Apollyon sought each other to subdue. The men so bravely played the man, he made the fiend to fly, of which a monument I stand, the same to testify. When they had passed by this place, they came upon the borders of the shadow of death. This valley was longer than the other, a place also most strangely haunted with evil things, as many are able to testify. But these women and children went the better through it, because they had daylight, and because Mr. Greatheart was their conductor. When they were entered upon this valley, they thought that they heard a groaning, as of dead men, a very great groaning. They thought also that they did hear words of lamentation spoken, as of some in extreme torment. These things made the boys to quake. The women also looked pale and wan, but their guide bid them be of good comfort. So they went on a little farther, and they thought that they felt the ground begin to shake under them, as if some hollow place was there. They heard also a kind of hissing, as of serpents, but nothing as yet appeared. Then said the boys, Are we not yet at the end of this doleful place? But the guide also bid them be of good courage, and look well to their feet, lest happily, said he, you be taken in some snare. Now James began to be sick. But I think the cause thereof was fear, so his mother gave him some of that glass of spirits that had been given her at the interpreter's house, and three of the pills that Mr. Skill had prepared, and the boy began to revive. Thus they went on till they came to about the middle of the valley, and then Christiana said, Methinks I see something yonder upon the road before us, a thing of such shape as I have not seen. Then said Joseph, Mother, what is it? An ugly thing, child, an ugly thing, said she. But, mother, what is it like? Tis like I cannot tell, said she, and now it is but a little way off. Then she said, It is nigh. Well, well, said Mr. Greatheart, let them that are most afraid keep close to me. So the fiend came on, and the conductor met it. But when it was just come to him, it vanished to all their sights. Then remembered they what had been said some time ago, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. They went therefore on as being a little refreshed, but they had not gone far before Mercy, looking behind her, saw, as she thought, something most like a lion, and it came a great padding pace after, 
and it had a hollow voice of roaring, and at every roar that it gave it made all the valley echo, and all their hearts to ache, save the heart of him that was the guide. So it came, and Mr. Greatheart went behind, and put the pilgrims all before him. The lion also came on apace, and Mr. Greatheart addressed himself to give him battle. But when he saw that it was determined that resistance should be made, he also drew back and came no farther. Then they went on again, and their conductor did go before them, till they came to a place where was cast up a pit the whole breadth of the way. And before they could be prepared to go over that, a great mist and darkness fell upon them, so that they could not see. Then said the pilgrims, Alas, what now shall we do? But their guide made answer, Fear not, stand still, and see what an end will be put to this also. So they stayed there, because their path was marred. Then they also thought that they did hear more apparently the noise and rushings of the enemies, the fire also, and the smoke of the pit was much easier to be discerned. Then said Christiana to Mercy, Now I see what my poor husband went through. I have heard much of this place, but I never was here before now. Poor man, he went here all alone in the night. He had night almost quite through the way. Also these fiends were busy about him, as if they would have torn him in pieces. Many have spoken of it, but none can tell what the valley of the shadow of death should mean, until they come to it themselves. The heart knoweth its own bitterness, and the stranger intermeddleth not with its joy. To be here is a fearful thing. Then said Greatheart, This is like doing business in great waters, or like going down into the deep. This is like being in the heart of the sea, and like going down to the bottoms of the mountains. Now it seems as if the earth, with its bars, were about us forever. But let them that walk in darkness and have no light, Trust in the name of the Lord, and stay upon their God. For my part, as I have told you already, I have gone often through this valley, and have been much harder put to it than now I am, and yet you see, I am alive. I would not boast, for that I am not mine own Savior, but I trust we shall have a good deliverance. Come, let us pray for light to him that can lighten our darkness, and that can rebuke not only these, but all the Satans in hell. So they cried and prayed, and God sent light and deliverance. For there was now no let in their way, no, not there where, but now they were stopped with a pit. Yet they were not got through the valley, so they went on still. And behold, great stinks and loathsome smells, to the great annoyance of them. Then said Mercy to Christiana, It is not so pleasant being here as at the gate, or at the interpreters, or at the house where we lay last. Oh, but, said one of the boys, it is not so bad to go through here as it is to abide here always, and for aught I know, one reason why we must go this way to the house prepared for us is, that our home might be made the sweeter to us. Well said, Samuel, said the guide, thou hast now spoke like a man. Why, if I ever get out of here again, said the boy, I think I shall prize light and good way better than ever I did in all my life. Then said the guide, we shall be out by and by. So on they went, and Joseph said, Cannot we see to the end of this valley as yet? Then said the guide, Look to your feet, for we shall presently be among the snares. So they looked to their feet and went on, but they were troubled much with the snares. Now when they were come among the snares, they espied a man cast into the ditch on the left hand, 
with all his flesh all rent and torn. Then said the guide, That is one heedless that was going this way. He has lain there a great while. There was one take heed with him when he was taken and slain, but he escaped their hands. You cannot imagine how many are killed hereabouts, and yet men are so foolishly venturous as to sit out lightly on pilgrimage, and to come without a guide. Poor Christian, it is a wonder that he here escaped, but he was beloved of his God. Also he had a good heart of his own, or else he could never have done it. Now they drew towards the end of the way, and just where Christian had seen the cave when he went by, out thence came forth Maul, a giant. This Maul did use to spoil young pilgrims with sophistry, and he called Greatheart by his name and said unto him, How many times have you been forbidden to do these things? Then said Mr. Greatheart, What things? What things, said the giant, you know what things, but I will put an end to your trade. But pray, said Mr. Greatheart, before we fall to it, let us understand wherefore we must fight. Now the women and children stood trembling and knew not what to do. Said the giant, You rob the country, and rob it with the worst of thefts. These are but generals, said Mr. Greatheart. Come to particulars, man. Then said the giant, Thou practiced the craft of a kidnapper. Thou gatherest up women and children, and carriest them into a strange country, to the weakening of my master's kingdom. But now Greatheart replied, I am a servant of the God of heaven. My business is to persuade sinners to repentance. I am commanded to do my endeavor to turn men, women, and children from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God. And if this be indeed the ground of thy quarrel, let us fall to it as soon as thou wilt. Then the giant came up, and Mr. Greatheart went to meet him. And as he went, he drew his sword, but the giant had a club. So without more ado they fell to it, and at the first blow the giant struck Mr. Greatheart down upon one of his knees. With that the women and children cried out. So Mr. Greatheart, recovering himself, laid about him in full lusty manner, and gave the giant a wound in his arm. Thus they fought for the space of an hour, to that height of heat that the breath came out of the giant's nostrils, as the heat doth out of a boiling cauldron. Weak folks' prayers do sometimes help strong folks' cries. Then they sat down to rest, but Mr. Greatheart betook himself to prayer. Also the women and children did nothing but sigh and cry all the time that the battle did last. When they had rested them and taken breath, they both fell to it again, and Mr. Greatheart with a blow fetched the giant down to the ground. Nay, hold and let me recover, said he. So Mr. Greatheart fairly let him get up. So to it they went again, and the giant missed but little of all to breaking Mr. Greatheart's skull with his club. Mr. Greatheart, seeing that, runs to him in a full heat of his spirit, and pierces him under the fifth rib. With that the giant began to faint, and could hold up his club no longer. Then Mr. Greatheart seconded his blow, and smote the head of the giant from his shoulders. Then the women and children rejoiced, and Mr. Greatheart also praised God for the deliverance he wrought. When this was done, they amongst them erected a pillar, and fastened the giant's head thereon, and wrote under it in letters that passengers might read. He that did wear this head was one that pilgrims did misuse. He stopped their way, he spared none, but did them all abuse. Until that I, great heart, arose, the pilgrim's guide to be, until that I did him oppose, 
that was their enemy. Now I saw that they went to the ascent that was a little way off, cast up to be a prospect for pilgrims. That was the place from whence Christian had the first sight of Faithful, his brother. Wherefore here they sat down and rested. They also here did eat and drink and make merry, for that they had gotten deliverance from this so dangerous an enemy. As they sat thus and did eat, Christiana asked the guide if he had caught no hurt in the battle. Then said Mr. Greatheart, No, save a little on my flesh, yet that also shall be so far from being to my detriment that it is at present a proof of my love to my master and you, and shall be a means by grace to increase my reward at last. And Christiana said, But were you not afraid, good sir, when you saw him come out with his club? It is my duty, said he, to mistrust my own ability, that I may have reliance on him who is stronger than all. But what did you think when he fetched you down to the ground at the first blow? asked Christiana. Why, I thought, replied he, that so my master himself was served, and yet he it was that conquered at the last. And Matthew said, When you all have thought what you please, I think God has been wonderful good unto us, both in bringing us out of this valley, and in delivering us out of the hand of this enemy. For my part, I see no reason why we should distrust our God any more, since he has now, and in such a place as this, given us such testimony of his love as this. Then they got up and went forward. Now a little before them stood an oak, and under it, when they came to it, they found an old pilgrim fast asleep. They knew that he was a pilgrim by his clothes, and his staff, and his girdle. So the guide, Mr. Greatheart, awakened him, and the old gentleman, as he lifted up his eyes, cried out, What's the matter? Who are you? And what is your business here? Mr. Greatheart said, Come, man, be not so hot. Here are none but friends. Yet the old man gets up and stands upon his guard, and will know of them what they are. Then said the guide, My name is Greatheart. I am the guide of these pilgrims that are going to the celestial country. One saint sometimes takes another for his enemy. Then said Mr. Honest, I cry you mercy. I feared that you had been of the company of those that some time ago did rob little faith of his money. But now I look better about me. I perceive you are honest people. And then said Mr. Greatheart, Why, what would or could you have done to have helped yourself, if we indeed had been of that company? Done, said Mr. Honest. Why, I would have fought as long as breath had been in me. And had I so done, I am sure you could never have given me the worst of it. For a Christian can never be overcome unless he shall yield of himself. Well, said Father Honest, said the guide, for by this I know thou art a cock of the right kind, for thou hast said the truth. And then said Mr. Honest, and by this also I know that thou knowest what true pilgrimage is, for all others do think that we are the soonest overcome of any. And Mr. Greatheart said, Well now, we are so happily met, pray, let me crave your name and the name of the place you come from. My name I cannot, said Mr. Honest, but I came from the town of Stupidity. It lieth about four degrees beyond the city of destruction. Oh, are you that countryman? asked Greatheart. Then I deem I have a guess of you. Your name is Old Honesty, is it not? So the old gentleman blushed and said, Not honesty in the abstract, but honest is my name. And I wish that my nature may agree to what I am called. 
But sir, said the old gentleman, how could you guess that I am such a man, since I came from such a place? Stupefied ones are worse than those merely carnal. Greatheart said, I had heard of you before by my master, for he knows all things that are done on the earth. But I have often wondered that any should come from your place, for your town is worse than is the city of destruction itself. Yes, said Mr. Honest, we lie more off from the sun, and so are more cold and senseless. But were a man in a mountain of ice, yet if the sun of righteousness should rise upon him, his frozen heart shall feel a thaw, and thus it hath been with me. I believe it, said Greatheart, Father Honest, I believe it, for I know the thing is true. Then the old gentleman saluted all the pilgrims with a holy kiss of charity, and asked their names, and how they had fared since they had set out on their pilgrimage. Then said Christiana, My name I suppose you have heard of. Good Christian was my husband, and these are his children. But can you think how the old gentleman was taken when she told him who she was? He skipped, he smiled, he blessed them with a thousand good wishes, saying, I have heard much of your husband, and of his travels and wars which he underwent in his days. Be it spoken to your comfort, the name of your husband rings all over these parts of the world. His faith, his courage, his enduring, and his sincerity under all have made his name famous. Then he turned to the boys and asked of them their names, which they told him. Then he said unto them, Matthew, be thou like Matthew, the publican, not in vice, but in virtue. Samuel, said he, be thou like Samuel, the prophet, a man of faith and prayer. Joseph, said he, be thou like Joseph in Potiphar's house, chaste and one that flees from temptation. And James, be thou like James the just, and like James the brother of our Lord. Then they told him of mercy, and how she had left her town and her kindred to come along with Christiana and with her sons. At that the old honest man said, Mercy is thy name? By mercy shalt thou be sustained and carried through all those difficulties that shall assault thee in thy way, till thou shalt come thither where thou shalt look the fountain of mercy in the face with comfort. All this while the guide, Mr. Greatheart, was very well pleased and smiled upon his companion. Now as they walked along together, the guide asked the old gentleman if he did not know one Mr. Fearing that came on pilgrimage out of his parts. Yes, very well, said Mr. Honest. He was a man that had the root of the matter in him, but he was one of the most troublesome pilgrims that ever I met with in all my days. I perceive you knew him, said Greatheart for you have given a very right character of him. Knew him, said Mr. Honest. I was a great companion of his. I was with him most in end. When he first began to think upon what would come upon us hereafter, I was with him. I was his guide from my master's house to the gates of the celestial city, said Greatheart. And Mr. Honest said, Then you knew him to be a troublesome one? I did so, said Greatheart, but I could very well bear it. For men of my calling are oftentimes entrusted with the conduct of such as he was. Well then, Mr. Honest said, pray, let us hear a little of him, and how he managed himself under your conduct. Then said Greatheart, why, he was always afraid that he should come short of whither he had a desire to go. Everything frightened him that he heard anybody speak of, if it had but the least appearance of opposition in it. 
I hear that he lay roaring at the slough of despond for above a month. Nor durst he, for all he saw, several go over before him, venture, though they, many of them, offered to lend him their hand. He would not go back again neither. The celestial city, he said, he should die if he came not to it, and yet was dejected at every difficulty, and stumbled at every straw that anybody cast in his way. Well, after he had lain at the slough of despond a great while, as I have told you, one sunshining morning, I don't know how, he ventured, and so got over. But when he was over, he would scarce believe it. He had, I think, a slough of despond in his mind, a slough that he carried everywhere with him, or else he could never have been as he was. So he came up to the gate, you know what I mean, that stands at the head of this way, and here also he stood a good while before he would adventure to knock. When the gate was opened, he would give back and give place to others, and say that he was not worthy. For, for all he got before some to the gate, yet many of them went in before him. There the poor man would stand shaking and shrinking. I dare say it would have pitied one's heart to have seen him. Nor would he go back again. At last he took the hammer that hanged on the gate in his hand, and gave a small rap or two. Then one opened to him, but he shrank back as before. He that opened stepped out after him and said, Thou trembling one, what wantest thou? With that he fell to the ground. He that spoke to him wondered to see him so faint, so he said to him, Peace be to thee. Up, for I have set open the door to thee. Come in, for thou art blessed. With that he got up and went in trembling, and when he was in, he was ashamed to show his face. Well, after he had been entertained there a while, as you know how the manner is, he was bid go on his way, and also told the way he should take. So he came till he came to our house, but as he behaved himself at the gate, so he did at my master, the interpreter's door. He lay there about in the cold a good while before he would adventure to call, yet he would not go back, and the nights were long and cold then. Nay, he had a note of necessity in his bosom to my master to receive him and grant him the comfort of his house, and also to allow him a stout and valiant conductor, because he was himself so chicken-hearted a man, and yet for all that he was afraid to call at the door. So he lay up and down thereabouts, till poor man he was almost starved. Yea, so great was his dejection, though he had seen several others for knocking it in, yet he was afraid to venture. At last, I think, I looked out of the window, and perceiving a man to be up and down about the door, I went out to him and asked what he was. But poor man, the water stood in his eyes, so I perceived what he wanted. I went therefore in and told it in the house, and we showed the thing to our Lord. So he sent me out again to entreat him to come in. But I dare say I had hard work to do it. At last he came in, and I will say that for my Lord he carried it wonderful lovingly to him. There were but few good bits at the table, but some of it was laid upon his trencher. Then he presented the note, and my Lord looked thereon, and said his desire should be granted. So when he had been there a good while, he seemed to get some heart, and to be a little more comfortable. For my master, you must know, is one of a very tender bowels, specially to them that are afraid. Wherefore he carried it so towards him as might tend most to his encouragement. Well, when he had had a sight of the things of the place, and was ready to take his journey to go to the city, my lord, as he did to Christian before, 
gave him a bottle of spirits and some comfortable things to eat. Thus we set forward, and I went before him. But the man was but a few words, only he would sigh aloud. When we were come to the place where the three fellows were hanged, he said that he doubted that that would be his end also. Only he seemed glad when he saw the cross and the sepulchre. There, I confess, he desired to stay a little to look, and he seemed, for a little while after, to be a little cheery. When we came at the hill of difficulty, he made no stick at that, nor did he much fear the lions, for you must know that his trouble was not about such things as those, his fear was about his acceptance at the last. I got him in at the house beautiful, I think, before he was willing. Also when he was in, I brought him acquainted with the damsels that were of the place, but he was ashamed to make himself much for company. He desired much to be alone, yet he always loved good talk, and often would get behind the screen to hear it. He also loved much to see ancient things, and to be pondering them in his mind. He told me afterwards that he loved to be in those two houses from which he came last, to wit at the gate, and that of the interpreter, but that he durst not be so bold as to ask. When he went also from the house beautiful, down the hill into the valley of humiliation, he went down as well as ever I saw a man in my life, for he cared not how mean he was, so he might be happy at last. Yea, I think there was a kind of sympathy betwixt the valley and him, for I never saw him better in all his pilgrimage than when he was in that valley. Here he would lie down, embrace the ground, and kiss the very flowers that grew in this valley. He would now be up every morning by break of day, tracing and walking to and fro in the valley. But when he was come to the entrance of the valley of the shadow of death, I thought I should have lost my man. Not for that he had any inclination to go back, that he always abhorred, but he was ready to die for fear. Oh, the hobgoblins will have me, the hobgoblins will have me. And I could not beat him out of it. He made such a noise and such an outcry here, that had they but heard him, it was enough to encourage them to come and fall upon us. But this I took very great notice of, that this valley was as quiet while we went through it as ever I knew it before or since. I suppose those enemies here had now a special check from our Lord, and a command not to meddle until Mr. Fearing had passed over it. It would be too tedious to tell you of all. I will therefore only mention a passage or two. When he was come at Vanity Fair, I thought he would have fought with all the men in the fair. I feared there we should both have been knocked on the head, so hot was he against their fooleries. Upon the enchanted ground he was also very wakeful. But when he was come at the river, where was no bridge, there again he was in a heavy case. Now, now, he said, he should be drowned forever, and so never see that face with comfort that he had come so many miles to behold. And here also I took notice of what was very remarkable. The water of that river was lower at this time than ever I saw it in all my life. So he went over at last, not much above wet shod. When he was going up to the gate, I began to take leave of him and to wish him a good reception above. So he said, I shall, I shall. Then we parted asunder, and I saw him no more. Then it seems he was well at last, asked Honest. Yes, yes, I never had a doubt about him. He was a man of choice spirit, only he was always kept very low, and that made his life so burdensome to him and so troublesome to others. He was, above many, tender of sin, 
and was so afraid of doing injuries to others that he often would deny himself of that which was lawful because he would not offend. Mr. Honest said, But what should be the reason that such a good man should be all his days so much in the dark? Reasons why good men are so in the dark. And Greatheart replied, There are two sorts of reasons for it. One is, the wise God will have it so. Some must pipe and some must weep. Now Mr. Fearing was one that played upon this bass. He and his fellows sound the sackbut, whose notes are more doleful than the notes of other music are. Though indeed, some say the bass is the ground of the music. And for my part, I care not at all for that profession which begins not in heaviness of mind. The first string that the musician usually touches is the bass, when he intends to put all in tune. God also plays upon this string first when he sets the soul in tune for himself. Only here was the imperfection of Mr. Fearing. He could play upon no other music but this till toward his latter end. I make bold to talk thus metaphorically for the ripening of the wits of young readers and because in the book of the Revelation the saved are compared to a company of musicians that play upon their trumpets and harps and sing their songs before the throne. Then said Mr. Honest, He was a very zealous man, as one may see by the relation which you have given of him. Difficulties, lions, or vanity fair he feared not at all. It was only sin, death, and hell that were to him a terror, because he had some doubts about his interest in that celestial country. Then said Greatheart, You say right. Those were the things that were his troublers, and they, as you have well observed, arose from the weakness of his mind thereabout, not from weakness of spirit as to the practical part of a pilgrim's life. I dare believe that, as the proverb is, he would have bit a firebrand had it stood in his way. But the things with which he was oppressed no man ever yet could shake off with ease. Then said Christiana, This relation of Mr. Fearing has done me good. I thought nobody had been like me but I see there was some semblance betwixt this good man and I, only we differed in two things. His troubles were so great that they break out, but mine I kept within. He also lay so hard upon him, they made him that he could not knock at the houses provided for entertainment, but my trouble was always such as made me knock the louder. Then said Mercy, If I might also speak my heart, I must say that something of him has also dwelt in me for I have ever been more afraid of the lake and the loss of a place in paradise than I have been of the loss of other things. Oh, thought I, may I have the happiness to have a habitation there. It is enough, though I part with all the world to win it. Then said Matthew, Fear was one thing that made me think that I was far from having that within me which accompanies salvation. But if it were so with such a good man as he, why may it not also go well with me? No fears, no grace, said James. Though there is not always grace where there is fear of hell, yet to be sure there is no grace where there is no fear of God. Well said James, said Greatheart, thou hast hit the mark. For the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, and to be sure, they that want the beginning have neither middle nor end. But we will here conclude our discourse of Mr. Fearing, after we have sent after him this farewell. Well, Master Fearing, Thou didst fear thy God, and wast afraid of doing anything while here that would have thee betrayed. And didst thou fear the lake and pit, would others did so too. 
For as for them, they want thy wit, they do themselves undo. Now I saw that they still went on in their talk, for after Mr. Greatheart had made an end with Mr. Fearing, Mr. Honest began to tell them of another, but his name was Mr. Self-Will. He pretended himself to be a pilgrim, said Mr. Honest, but I persuade myself he never came in at the gate that stands at the head of the way. And Greatheart replied, Had you ever any talk with him about it? Yes, more than once or twice, but he would always be like himself, self-willed. He neither cared for man, nor argument, nor yet example. What his mind prompted him to do, that he would do, and nothing else could he be got to do. Pray, what principles did he hold, asked Greatheart, for I suppose you can tell. He held, said Mr. Honest, that a man might follow the vices as well as the virtues of pilgrims, and that if he did both, he should be certainly saved. Oh, said Greatheart, if he had said it is possible for the best to be guilty of the vices, as well as to partake of the virtues of pilgrims, he could not much have been blamed. For indeed we are exempted from no vice absolutely, but on condition that we watch and strive. But this, I perceive, is not the thing, but if I understood you right, your meaning is that he was of opinion that it was allowable so to be. Aye, aye, so I mean, said Honest, and so he believed and practiced. And Greatheart said, But what grounds had he for his so saying? Why, said Mr. Honest, he said he had the scripture for his warrant. Tell me, Mr. Honest, said Greatheart, present us with a few particulars. And so I will, said Honest. He said to have to do with other men's wives had been practiced by David, God's beloved, and therefore he could do it. He said to have more women than one was a thing that Solomon practiced, and therefore he could do it. He said that Sarah and the godly midwives of Egypt lied, and so did Rahab, and therefore he could do it too. He said that the disciples went at the bidding of their master and took away the owner's ass, and therefore he could do so also. He said that Jacob got the inheritance of his father in a way of guile and dissimulation, and therefore he could too. Highly base indeed, said Greatheart, and you are sure he was of this opinion? Mr. Honest said, I have heard him plead for it, bring scripture for it, and bring argument for it, etc. And Greatheart said, An opinion that is not fit to be with any allowance in the world. You must understand me rightly, said Honest, he did not say that any man might do this, but that they who had the virtues of those that did such things might also do the same. And Greatheart replied, But what more false than such a conclusion? For this is as much to say that, because good men heretofore have sinned of infirmity, therefore he had an allowance to do it of a presumptuous mind. Or if, because a child, by the blast of the wind, or for that it stumbled at a stone, fell down and defiled itself in the mire, therefore he might willfully lie down and wallow like a boar therein. Who could have thought that anyone could so far have been blinded by the power of lust? But what is written must be true. They stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. His supposing that such may have the godly man's virtues, who addict themselves to their vices, is also a delusion as strong as the other. To eat up the sin of God's people as a dog licks up filth is no sign of one that is possessed with their virtues. Nor can I believe that one who is of this opinion can at present have faith or love in him. 
but I know you have made strong objections against him. Tell me, what can he say for himself? Why, he says, said Mr. Honest, to do this by way of opinion seems abundantly more honest than to do it, and yet hold contrary to it in opinion. A very wicked answer, said Greatheart, for though to let loose the bridle to lust, while our opinions are against such things is bad, yet to sin and plead a toleration so to do is worse. The one stumbles beholders accidentally, the other pleads them into the snare. Then said Mr. Honest, There are many of this man's mind that have not this man's mouth, and that makes going on pilgrimage of so little esteem as it is. And said Greatheart, You have said the truth, and it is to be lamented. But he that feareth the king of paradise shall come out of them all. Then Christiana said, There are strange opinions in the world. I know one that said it was time enough to repent when they came to die. And Greatheart said, Such are not overwise. That man would have been loath, might he have had a week to run twenty miles in for his life, to have deferred that journey to the last hour of that week. And Mr. Honest said, You say right, and yet the generality of them who count themselves pilgrims do indeed do thus. I am, as you see, an old man, and have been a traveler in this road many a day, and I have taken notice of many things. I have seen some that have set out as if they would drive all the world afore them, who yet have, in a few days, died as they in the wilderness, and so never got sight of the promised land. I have seen some that have promised nothing at first, setting out to be pilgrims, and that one would have thought could not have lived a day, that have yet proved very good pilgrims. I have seen some that have run hastily forward, that again have, after a little time, run just as fast back again. I have seen some who have spoken very well of a pilgrim's life at first, that after a while have spoken as much against it. I have heard some, when they first set out for paradise, say positively there is such a place, who, when they have been almost there, have come back again and said there is none. I have heard some vaunt what they would do in case they should be oppressed. They have, even at a false alarm, fled faith, the pilgrim's way, and all. Now as they were thus in their way, there came one running to meet them and said, Gentlemen, you and of the weaker sort, if you love life, shift for yourselves, for the robbers are before you. Then said Mr. Greatheart, They be the three that set upon little faith heretofore. Well, said he, we are ready for them. So they went on their way. Now they looked at every turning when they should have met with the villains, but whether they heard of Mr. Greatheart, or whether they had some other game, they came not up to the pilgrims. Chapter 7 Christiana then wished for an inn for herself and her children, because they were weary. Then said Mr. Honest, There is one a little before us, where a very honorable disciple, one Gaius, dwells. So they all concluded to turn in thither, and the rather because the old gentleman gave him so good a report. When they came to the door they went in, not knocking, for folks used not to knock at the door of an inn. Then they called for the master of the house, and he came to them. So they asked if they might lie there that night. Yes, gentlemen, said Gaius, if you be true men, for my house is for none but pilgrims. Then were Christiana, Mercy, and the boys the more glad, for that the innkeeper was a lover of pilgrims. So they called for rooms, and he showed them one for Christiana, and her children, and Mercy, and another for Mr. Greatheart and the old gentleman. Then said Mr. Greatheart, 
Good Gaius, what hast thou for supper? For these pilgrims have come far today and are weary. It is late, said Gaius, so we cannot conveniently go out to seek food. But such as we have you shall be welcome too, if that will content. We will be content, said Greatheart, with what thou hast in the house. For as much as I have proved thee, thou art never destitute of that which is convenient. Then he went down and spake to the cook, whose name was, Taste that which is good, to get ready supper for so many pilgrims. This done he came up again, saying, Come, my good friends, you are welcome to me, and I am glad that I have a house to entertain you in. And while supper is making ready, if you please, let us entertain one another with some good discourse. So they all said, Content. Then said Gaius, Whose wife is this aged matron, and whose daughter is this young damsel? The woman is the wife of one Christian, said Greatheart, a pilgrim of former times, and these are his four children. The maid is one of her acquaintance, one that she hath persuaded to come on her with pilgrimage. The boys take all after their father and covet to tread in his steps. Yea, if they do but see any place where the old pilgrim hath lain, or any print of his foot, it ministers joy to their hearts, and they covet to lie or tread in the same. Then said Gaius, Is this Christian's wife, and are these Christian's children? I knew your husband's father, yea, also his father's father. Many have been good of this stock. Their ancestors dwelt first in Antioch. Christian's progenitors, I suppose you have heard your husband talk of them, were very worthy men. They have, above any that I know, showed themselves men of great virtue and courage for the Lord of pilgrims, his ways, and them that loved him. I have heard of many of your husband's relations that have stood all trials for the sake of the truth. Stephen, who was one of the first of the family from whence your husband sprang, was knocked on the head with stones. James, another of this generation, was slain with the edge of the sword. To say nothing of Paul and Peter, men anciently of the family, from whence your husband came. There was Ignatius, who was cast to the lions, Romanus, whose flesh was cut by pieces from his bones, and Polycarp that played the man in the fire. There was he that was hanged up in a basket in the sun for the wasps to eat, and he whom they put into a sack and cast him into the sea to be drowned. It would be utterly impossible to count up all of that family who have suffered injuries and death for the love of a pilgrim's life. Nor can I but be glad to see that thy husband has left behind him four such boys as these. I hope they will bear out their father's name and tread in their father's steps and come to their father's end. Then said Greatheart, Indeed, sir, they are likely lads. They seem to choose heartily their father's way. Then said Gaius, That is it that I said. Wherefore, Christian's family is like to spread abroad upon the face of the ground and yet to be numerous upon the face of the earth. Wherefore, let Christiana look out some damsels for her sons to whom they may be betrothed, etc., that the name of their father and the house of his progenitors may never be forgotten in the world. Then said Mr. Honest, "'Tis a pity this family should fall and be extinct. And Gaius said, "'Fall it cannot, but be diminished it may. But let Christiana take my advice, and that is the way to uphold it. And Christiana said this innkeeper, "'I am glad to see thee and thy friend Mercy together here, a lovely couple.' And may I advise, take mercy into a nearer relation to thee. If she will, let her be given to Matthew, thy eldest son. It is the way to preserve you a posterity in the earth. 
So this match was concluded, and in the process of time they were married, but more of that hereafter. Gaius also proceeded and said, I will now speak on the behalf of women to take away their reproach. For as death and the curse came into the world by a woman, so also did life and health. God sent forth his Son, made of a woman. Yea, to show how much they that came after did abhor the act of their mother, this sex in the Old Testament coveted children, if happily this or that woman might be the mother of the Savior of the world. I will say again that when the Savior was come, women rejoiced in him before either man or angel. I read not that man ever gave unto Christ so much as one groat, but the women followed him and ministered to him of their substance. T'was a woman that washed his feet with tears, and a woman that anointed his body to the burial. They were women that wept when he was going to the cross, and women that followed him from the cross, and that sat over against the sepulchre when he was buried. They were women that were first with him at his resurrection morn, and women that brought tidings first to his disciples that he was risen from the dead. Women, therefore, are highly favored, and show by these things that they are sharers with us in the grace of life. Now the cook sent up to signify that supper was almost ready, and sent one to lay the cloth, the trenchers, and to set the salt and bread in order. Then said Matthew, The sight of this cloth and of this forerunner of the supper begets in me a greater appetite to my food than I had before. And Gaius said, So let all ministering doctrines to thee in this life beget in thee a greater desire to sit at the supper of the great king in his kingdom. For all preaching, books, and ordinances here are but as the laying of the trenchers and our setting of salt upon the board when compared with the feast which our Lord will make for us when we come to his house. So supper came, and first a heaved shoulder and a waved breast were set on the table before them to show that they must begin their meal with prayer and praise to God. The heaved shoulder David lifted up his heart to God with, and the waved breast where his heart lay he used to lean upon his harp when he played. These two dishes were very fresh and good, and they all ate heartily well thereof. The next they brought up was a bottle of wine, red as blood. So Gaius said to them, Drink freely. This is the true juice of the vine that makes glad the heart of God and man. So they drank and were merry. The next was a dish of milk, well crumbled. But Gaius said, Let the boys have that, that they may grow thereby. Then they brought up in course a dish of butter and honey. Then said Gaius, Eat freely of this, for this is good to cheer up and strengthen your judgments and understandings. This was our Lord's dish when he was a child. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. Then they brought them up a dish of apples, and they were very good-tasted fruit. Then said Matthew, May we eat apples, since they were such by, and with which the serpent beguiled our first mother? Then said Gaius, Apples were they with which we were beguiled, Yet sin, not apples, hath our souls defiled. Apples forbid, if ate, corrupt the blood. To eat such one commanded does us good. Drink of his flagons, then, thou church, his dove, and eat his apples who are sick of love. Then said Matthew, I made the scruple because I, a while since, was sick with eating of fruit. And Gaius said, Forbidden fruit will make you sick, but not what our Lord has tolerated. 
While they were thus talking, they were presented with another dish, and it was a dish of nuts. Then said some at the table, Nuts spoil tender teeth, especially the teeth of the children, which when Gaius heard he said, Hard texts are nuts, I will not call them cheaters, who shells do keep their kernels from the eaters. Ope then the shells, and you shall have the meat. They here are brought for you to crack and eat. Then they were very merry and sat at the table a long time talking of many things. Then said the old gentleman, My good landlord, while we are cracking your nuts, if you please, do open this riddle. A man there was, though some did count him mad, the more he cast away, the more he had. Then they all gave good heed, wondering what good Gaius would say. So he sat still a while, and then thus replied, He that bestows his goods upon the poor shall have as much again and ten times more. Then said Joseph, I dare say, sir, I did not think you could have found it out. Oh, said Gaius, I have been trained up in this way a good while. Nothing teaches like experience. I have learned of my Lord to be kind, and have found by experience that I have gained thereby. There is that scattereth and yet increaseth. There is that withholdeth more than is meat, but it tendeth to poverty. There is that maketh himself rich, yet hath nothing. There is that maketh himself poor, yet hath great riches. Then Samuel whispered to Christiana his mother and said, Mother, this is a very good man's house. Let us stay here a good while, and let my brother Matthew be married here to mercy before we go further. The which Gaius the host overhearing said, With a very good will, my child. So they stayed there more than a month, and mercy was given to Matthew to wife. While they stayed here, Mercy, as her custom was, would be making coats and garments to give to the poor, by which she brought up a very good report upon the pilgrims. But to return again to our story. After supper the lads desired a bed, for that they were weary with traveling. Then Gaius called to show them their chambers, but said Mercy, I will have them to bed. So she had them to bed, and they slept well, but the rest sat up all night. For Gaius and they were such suitable company that they could not tell how to part. Then, after much talk of their lord themselves and their journey, old Mr. Honest, he that put forth the riddle to Gaius, began to nod. Then said Greatheart, What, sir, you begin to be drowsy? Come, rub up, now here's a riddle for you. Then said Mr. Honest, Let us hear it. Then said Mr. Greatheart, He that will kill must first be overcome. Who live abroad would, first must die at home. Ha, said Mr. Honest, it is a hard one, hard to expound and harder to practice. But come, landlord, said he, I will, if you please, leave my part to you. Do you expound it, and I will hear what you say. No, said Gaius, it was put to you, and it is expected you should answer it. Then said the old gentleman, He first by grace must conquered be, that sin would mortify. And who that lives would convince me unto himself must die. It is right, said Gaius, good doctrine and experience teach this. For first, until grace displays itself and overcomes the soul with its glory, it is altogether without heart to oppose sin. Besides, if sin is Satan's cord by which the soul lies bound, how should it make resistance before it is loosed from that infirmity? Secondly, nor will anyone that knows either reason or grace believe that such a man can be a living monument of grace that is a slave to his own corruptions. And now it comes into my mind, I will tell you a story worth the hearing. 
There were two men that went on pilgrimage. The one began when he was young, the other when he was old. The young man had strong corruptions to grapple with. The old man's were decayed with the decays of nature. The young man trod his steps as even as did the old one, and was every way as light as he. Who now, or which of them, had their graces shining clearest, since both seemed to be alike? Then said Mr. Honest, The young man's doubtless, for that which heads it against the greatest opposition gives best demonstration that it is strongest, especially when it also holds pace with that which meets not with half so much, as to be sure, old age does not. Besides, I have observed that old men have blessed themselves with this mistake, namely, taking the decays of nature for a gracious conquest over corruptions, and so have been apt to beguile themselves. Indeed, old men that are gracious are best able to give advice to them that are young, because they have seen most of the emptiness of things. But yet, for an old and a young man to set out both together, the young one has the advantage of the fairest discovery of a work of grace within him, though the old man's corruptions are naturally the weakest. Thus they sat talking till break of day. Now when the family were up, Christiana bade her son James read a chapter. So he read the fifty-third of Isaiah. When he had done, Mr. Honest asked why it was said that the Savior was to come out of dry ground, and also that he had no form nor comeliness in him. Then said Mr. Greatheart, To the first I answer, because the church of the Jews, of which Christ came, had then lost almost all the sap and spirit of religion. To the second I say, The words are spoken in the person of unbelievers, who, because they want that eye that can see into our prince's heart, therefore they judge of him by the meanness of his outside, just like those that know not that precious stones are covered over with a homely crust, who, when they have found one, because they know not what they have found, cast it again away, as men do a common stone. Well, said Gaius, now you are here, and since, as I know Mr. Greatheart is good at his weapons, if you please, after we have refreshed ourselves, we will walk into the fields to see if we can do any good. About a mile from hence is one sleigh good, a giant, that doth much annoy the king's highway in these parts, and I know whereabout his haunt is. He is master of a number of thieves. T'would be well if we could clear these parts of him. So they consented and went, Mr. Greatheart with his sword, helmet, and shield, and the rest with spears and staves. When they were come to the place where he was, they found him with one feeble mind in his hands, whom his servants had brought unto him, having taken him in the way. Now the giant was rifling of him with a purpose after that to pick his bones, for he was of the nature of flesh-eaters. Well, so soon as he saw Mr. Greatheart and his friends at the mouth of his cave with their weapons, he demanded what they wanted. We want thee, said Greatheart, for we are come to revenge the quarrel of the many that thou hast slain of the pilgrims, when thou hast dragged them out of the king's highway, wherefore come out of thy cave. So he armed himself and came out, and to battle they went, and fought for above an hour, then stood still to take wind. Then said the giant, Why are you here on my ground? To revenge the blood of pilgrims, said Greatheart, as I told thee before. So they went at it again, and the giant made Mr. Greatheart give back. But he came up again, and in the greatness of his mind he let fly with such stoutness at the giant's head and sides 
that he made him let his weapon fall out of his hand. So he smote him and slew him and cut off his head and brought it away to the inn. He also took feeble mind the pilgrim and brought him with him to his lodgings. When they were come home they showed his head to the family and then set it up as they had done others before for a terror to those that should attempt to do as he hereafter. Then they asked Mr. Feeblemind how he fell into his hand. Mark this. Then said the poor man, I am a sickly man, as you see, and because death did usually once a day knock at my door, I thought I should never be well at home. So I betook myself to a pilgrim's life, and have traveled hither from the town of Uncertain, where I and my father were born. I am a man of no strength at all of body, nor yet of mind, but would if I could, though I can but crawl, spend my life in the pilgrim's way. Then I came at the gate that is at the head of the way. The Lord of that place did entertain me freely, neither objected he against my weakly looks, nor against my feeble mind, but gave me such things as were necessary for my journey, and bid me hope to the end. When I came to the house of the interpreter, I received much kindness there, and because the hill of difficulty was judged too hard for me, I was carried up that by one of his servants. Indeed, I have found much relief from pilgrims, though none were willing to go as softly as I am forced to do, yet still, as they come on, they bid me be of good cheer, and said that it was the will of their Lord that comfort should be given to the feeble-minded, and so went on their own pace. When I was come to a salt lane, then this giant met with me, and bid me prepare for an encounter. But alas, feeble one that I was, I had more need of a cordial, so he came up and took me. I conceded he should not kill me. Also, when he got me into his den, since I went not with him willingly, I believed I should come out alive again. For I have heard that not any pilgrim that is taken captive by violent hands, if he keeps heart whole towards his master, is by the laws of providence to die by the hands of the enemy. Robbed I look to be, and robbed to be sure I am. But I have, as you see, escaped with life, for the which I thank my king as author, and you as the means. Other brunts I also look for, but this I have resolved on, to wit, to run when I can, to go when I cannot run, and to creep when I cannot go. As to the main, I thank him that he loves me. I am fixed, my way is before me, my mind is beyond the river that has no bridge, though I am, as you see, but of a feeble mind. Then said old Mr. Honest, Have not you some time ago been acquainted with one Mr. Fearing, a pilgrim? Acquainted with him, said feeble mind. Yes, he came from the town of Stupidity, which lies four degrees northward of the city of destruction, and as many off of where I was born. Yet we were well acquainted, for indeed he was my uncle, my father's brother. He and I have been much of a temper, but he was a little shorter than I, but yet we were much of a complexion. And Mr. Honest replied, I perceive you know him, and I am apt to believe also that you are related one to another, for you have his whitely look, a cast like his with your eye, and your speech is much alike. And feeble mind said, Most have said so that have known us both, and besides, what I have read in him I have for the most part found in myself. Come, sir, said good Gaius, be of good cheer. You are welcome to me and to my house. What thou hast a mind to, call for freely, and what thou wouldst have my servants do for thee, they will do it with a ready mind. 
notice to be taken of providence. Then said Mr. Feeblemind, This is an unexpected favor, and as the sun shining out of a very dark cloud, did Giant Slaygood intend me this favor when he stopped me, and resolved to let me go no farther? Did he intend that after he had rifled my pockets, I should go to Gaius, mine host? Yet so it is. Now just as Feeblemind and Gaius were thus in talk, there came one running and called at the door and said, About a mile and a half off there was one Mr. Notright, a pilgrim, struck dead upon the place where he was, with a thunderbolt. Alas, said Mr. Feeblemind, is he slain? He overtook me some days before I came so far as hither, and would be my company keeper. He also was with me when Slaygood the giant took me, but he was nimble of his heels and escaped. But it seems he escaped to die, and I was taken to live. What one would think doth seek to slay outright, oft times delivers from the saddest plight. That very providence whose face is death doth oft times to the lowly life bequeath. I was taken, he did escape and flee. Hands crossed gives death to him and life to me. Now about this time Matthew and Mercy were married. Also Gaius gave his daughter Phoebe to James, Matthew's brother, to wife, after which time they yet stayed about ten days at Gaius' house, spending their time and the seasons like as pilgrims used to do. When they were to depart, Gaius made them a feast, and they did eat and drink and were merry. Now the hour was come that they must be gone, wherefore Mr. Greatheart called for a reckoning. But Gaius told him that at his house it was not the custom of pilgrims to pay for their entertainment. He boarded them by the year, but looked for his pay from the good Samaritan, who had promised him, at his return, whatsoever charge he was at with them, faithfully to repay him. Then said Mr. Greatheart to him, Beloved, thou doest faithfully. Whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou yet bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. Then Gaius took his leave of them all and his children, and particularly of Mr. Feeblemind. He also gave him something to drink by the way. Now Mr. Feeblemind, when they were going out of the door, made as if he intended to linger. The which, when Mr. Greatheart espied, he said, Come, Mr. Feeblemind, pray, do you go along with us. I will be your conductor, and you shall fare as the rest. Alas, said Feeblemind, I want a suitable companion. You are all lusty and strong, but I, as you see, am weak. I choose, therefore, rather to come behind, lest, by reason of my many infirmities, I should be both a burden to myself and to you. I am, as I said, a man of a weak and feeble mind, and shall be offended and made weak at that which others can bear. I shall like no laughing, I shall like no gay attire, I shall like no unprofitable questions. Nay, I am so weak a man as to be offended with that which others have a liberty to do. I do not yet know all the truth. I am a very ignorant Christian man. Sometimes if I hear any rejoice in the Lord, it troubles me, because I cannot do so too. It is with me as it is with a weak man among the strong, or as with a sick man among the healthy, or as a lamp despised. He that is ready to slip with his feet is as a lamp despised in the thought of him that is at ease, so that I know not what to do. But brother, said Mr. Greatheart, I have it in commission to comfort the feeble-minded and to support the weak. You must needs go along with us, we will wait for you, 
We will lend you our help. We will deny ourselves of some things both opinionative and practical for your sake. We will not enter into doubtful disputations before you. We will be made all things to you rather than you shall be left behind. Now all this while they were at Gaius' door, and, behold, as they were thus in the heat of their discourse, Mr. Ready to Halt came by, with his crutches in his hands, and he also was going on pilgrimage. Then said Mr. Feeblemind to him, How camest thou hither? I was but now complaining that I had not a suitable companion, but thou art according to my wish. Welcome, welcome, good Mr. Ready to Halt. I hope thou and I may be of some help. I shall be glad of thy company, said the other, and good Mr. Feeblemind, rather than we will part, since we are thus happily met, I will lend thee one of my crutches. Nay, said Feeblemind, though I thank thee for thy good will, I am not inclined to halt before I am lame. Howbeit, I think, when occasion is, it may help me against a dog. And Mr. Ready to Halt said, If either myself or my crutches can do thee a pleasure, we are both at thy command. Good Mr. Feeblemind. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing 
and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.